Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And we are diving back into a story that we have not covered for a while. There have been developments since the last time we have covered it. Of course, it is the twisted tale of a mom of three allegedly murdering her husband, Utah mom, Corey Richens. She stands accused of poisoning husband Eric by spiking his celebratory Moscow mule cocktail with five times the lethal dose of fentanyl. Now, as Corey Richens sits in jail awaiting trial, there are accusations by the state of jury tampering and much more than just that. So we are going to get to it and cover it all. Uh, with us once again is the Richens uh, family attorney for Eric Richens, the husband, uh, Greg Scordis. Uh, he is representing de deceased husband Eric and the family. He has practiced law since 1982, began his career at the Salt Lake Legal Defenders Association as a uh, public defender. Uh, he was representing indigent, indigent defendants. Now he has his own criminal defense practice and uh, one of the better criminal defense attorneys in the great state of Utah. Then Susan Constantine, who witnessed CARM firsthand at CrimeCon and can tell you that it is not an act. She is one of the nation's leading jury consultants. She's also a body language and communications expert. Uh, she owns the Human Behavior Lab. She's appeared on Dateline today, Fox and Friends, and many other big name shows. And last but not least, come to us on his cell phone because once again, the internet companies can't seem to manage their own business. Robin Dreek is a best best-selling author, professional speaker, a trainer, an executive coach, a podcast host. He is a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, a retired FBI special agent in the counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. One of his many jobs was recruiting spies. He is the author of The Code of Trust, and it is not all about me. A book, as I always say, my mother would love that title. Um, a lot to get to. Before we get there, happy afternoon on the East Coast of the United States and everywhere else. Uh, coming to you early today for two reasons. Number one, Got to attend to some family business later. And number two, like to give the global audience a chance to not have to stay up uh, in the middle of the night. Please, if you can, support us on Patreon and or as a YouTube member. If you can't do that, you've been amazing. It helps us almost as much to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it gets us noticed in the world of audio. And that way we can get advertisers and sponsors. So please give us a review uh, on audio. SurvivingTheSurvivor.com has been around always and will continue, and that has uh, live episodes as well. And of course, the merch store is open. Before we get cracking with our great panel here, just a quick background. Corey Richens, she's the one that you heard of. She wrote a, a little tearjerker book about grief. The book is called Are You With Me? It came out a year after she allegedly killed her husband, Eric, with the drink that includes vodka and ginger beer. Uh, I remember one time Greg Scordis said, I had no idea what a Moscow mule is. Now he does. Uh, her, her husband had suspected she was carrying on an extramarital affair. affair. Um, that is according to the man we have here, Greg Scordis. Eric had previously told a friend he believed his wife was trying to poison him after he became sick following a Valentine's Day dinner the month before his death. So he was poisoned once before. 
He died a day before Corey closed on a $2 million deal to buy a 22,000-square-foot home, a deal for which he had allegedly refused to pay. Corey, unbelievably, uh, and is suing Eric's estate, claiming that she deserves money and physical assets outlined in their prenup. Uh, she's seeking half the equity in the couple's home, which is estimated to be worth at least $1.9 million. So uh, that's what we call chutzpah. Uh, you can hear a little hiss off of Greg's mic. Uh, that's just the nature of things. But uh, Greg, welcome back to you. And I was uh, doing some uh, research and I had not recalled this, but um, is it true that Corey Richens also had purchased four, not one, not two, not three, but four life insurance plans prior to his demise. Uh, is that true? She was in the process, Joel, of purchasing them. She had made efforts and applications for four. I don't know whether all four of them actually came to fruition, but yeah, she was uh, uh, apparently setting up the uh, the estate for uh, what ended up happening here, which was him passing away by by really filling it with as much uh, life insurance as she could. Um, some of those didn't come through. Some were altered. Uh, Eric was uh, finally made aware of at least one of them and stopped it. But yeah, you're, you're basically right, Joel. And uh, you know, it happens too often when we discuss these cases, uh, they become sort of fictionalized, I think in our minds, because these are uh, crazier than fiction. So it's all, they're almost unbelievable, but Greg, how is, Eric Richens' family doing all these months later. I mean, she wasn't arrested for a, until a year after the crime. How's his sister? How are his, you know, family members doing today? You know, they're they're holding together very well, Joel. I mean, this it took I think almost a year between the time of the homicide and the time charges were filed. So they've been patient uh, with the Summit County uh, law enforcement community and the Summit County Attorney's Office. Uh, the trial is not even set yet. We haven't even had a preliminary hearing yet. She's in custody. The family is just uh, uh, hopeful. Uh, they're uh, comfortable with the fact that charges were finally filed and they feel like the state is on a good path, that they have a good case. And they're, uh, they're anxious for the trial and uh, believe that justice will prevail. And uh, Susan, welcome to you. Um Susan, by the way, uh, is it true? My mother is my mother, even off camera, right? <laughs> I love her. We became best friends. I says, you are so sweet. And she goes, no, I'm not so sweet. Kind of, kind of true. I think, um, by the way, uh, shout out to Henshi held here is coming to us from Jerusalem, uh, letting, uh, STS know that there were just more, uh, Missiles fired at Tel Aviv, where Tali Schechter, a member of our community, watches us. Uh, so keeping uh, Israel in our uh, minds during this broadcast and uh, thinking of Tali and Henshi, who are in uh, the line of fire, as they say. Catherine Regier, thankfully, no longer in the line of fire, but she's coming to us from Maui, which was devastated by the uh, by the wildfires. And look at this. Tali is in the audience. Hey, everyone, Joel, COE, Spacey, my sweet mods and my STS family. Good to see you. Uh, here's another comment from her. I wanted to say to my STS fam, thank you for all uh, your caring, writing me, and just for being you. It means the world to me. I'm so happy to be part of this community, and I love you all. Right back at you, um, 
Ali, and uh, stay safe and uh, send your family our regards. Uh, obviously, a hideous situation unfolding there. Um, more rockets being fired. And then Mish has come to us, a big friend of the show, uh, from Cape Town, South Africa. She says, I've been glued to the news for the fourth day in a row. This is needed desperately. Who am I that I watch true crime to escape the news? Uh, as I just said, uh, you got to pick your uh, pick your poison, I guess. But fiction is oftentimes worse than reality. But Susan, back to this now. So, um, you know, you can't watch an episode of Dateline or 2020 where you don't hear the two words life insurance. Uh, almost every episode. Uh, Corey Richens, as you just heard Greg Scordis say, was in the process of buying not one, not two, not three, but four life insurance plans. I mean, what does that tell you off the bat about her character? I mean, you're an expert in human behavior. This isn't body language per se, but uh, just the way her mind is working. Yeah. So, you know, I call it the left of banks. So there's all these behaviors that we start to see that kind of rev up to that actual moment. So her behavior of having to take out four different policies is telling you about not just one, two, three, but four is the amount of greediness, right? So, and not only that, she probably is figuring, well, if I get three of them that drop and I have one, at least I've got one and there's still one going. But the crazy thing about that is, is that how in the world did she get this pass without him having to have his own blood test and have his own exam? So, I mean, that's part of life insurance because I know my husband and I have just gone through that at our age. So anyway, I think that what all we're looking at is that her behaviors, that she's already thinking about it, she's already plotting it, she's already got a plan going, and then all she's doing is working towards the execution. Literally. <laughs> L- literally. Uh, Susan, I don't want to have to worry about you. You should never have gotten those life insurance plans, but uh, I guess <laughs> it's a it's a necessary evil. Uh, on a serious note, back to this for one second, so, since we do have a former counterintelligence expert here. Uh, This is a a very difficult comment I'm about to bring up here. This is from Andy School, another big friend of the show. This report just came out a little while ago. The Israeli army found 40 dead babies uh, approximately at a kibbutz in uh, southern Israel, and the majority of them were beheaded. Um, That's what you call sick animals, twisted animals. Uh, Robin, just for a brief moment, uh, because I think Mm -hmm. this is important for the the world to know, I mean, what what kind of depravity is this? I mean, this is has nothing to do with the rules of engagement, literally beheading babies uh, in the state of Israel. So what you're seeing there, and this is what Susan is talking about, too, when you look at human behavior in the ark, these animals, as you accurately described them, have a lifetime arc of objectifying a certain portion of society and they don't even look at it as human beings. And so to them, they're literally killing ants in their, in their small, insignificant mind. That's what allows human beings to do horrendous things against other human beings is the objectifying of the human being. And in order to do it that kind of scale, they've been doing it and indoctrinated it for their entire lives. It will, their minds will, cannot be undone from that. Yeah, and Robin, I don't want to make this about Israel or political today, although I think it is important. But um, Israel is in the process uh, of, they say, basically rooting out Hamas uh, once and for all. They're going to have to go in there. Um, I've got two nephews uh, through marriage who are both fighting uh, in the northern border in Lebanon. Uh, they're they're up there. They they left so fast they didn't have phone chargers or pillows or sleeping on leaves. Uh, you know, they don't have bases they, the way they do in the States. They, they have them, but 
uh, you know, they're out in the field uh, getting ready to prepare for battle. So, um, you know, we're trying to raise some money, you know, separately from the show, obviously. Um, but do you feel that that's the only way to kind of root this problem out is to rid the world of Hamas and what they've done? Yeah, it's, you know, terrorists all over the world that do this kind of action where they're demonstrating through their behavior, not just through their words, but through their words and behavior in conjunction like that, that they are objectifying human beings. It, it's not going to be undone. You've got to root it out. And I, I just came, I'm a private commercial pilot here locally, and I literally just came from the airport before this where I fly. And a, and a small group there was actually getting a, an advanced check ride, and they had just came from Israel. What was interesting to me was that they had a hard time getting flights out because there's so many people coming in to fight. It, it's, it's tremendously encouraging when you see the world. As I was in New York, as you know, Joel, and so were you during 9-11, when you see the world coming together with all the healthy human beings that there are in the world – we outnumber the unhealthy ones. And so I'm very optimistic this is going to be done. But, yeah, you have to root them out. And, you, and unfortunately, the, the pain that they inflicted is tremendous. And they, unconditioning them is that's a tall order. Well put. Uh, and now we will pivot back to uh, Corey Richards here. Just wanted uh, – we have an expert in counterintelligence here, so I wanted to pick his brain. But um, – Robin, same thing. We'll stick on the life insurance and then we'll get off of it. Uh, what about uh, Corey Richens, you know, ploy here to get not one but four life insurance plans? It seems excessive. Uh, do you think she was playing that out in her own mind, you know, in terms of trying to profit as much as possible before she knew she was going to commit the act that she's accused of committing? You know, Joel, as Susan was just saying, too, you, let's go back to this arc of human behavior. And we've seen this in some of these other cases that we've looked at. Just because someone's a murderer doesn't mean they're intelligent. <laughs> this is just one more data point of someone that has a low IQ. Again, I, I'm not trying to be blasphemous towards her in any way, unless she's guilty, obviously. Um, but this is someone who does really dumb things. And I think you gave her too much credit when you, and I apologize, in saying it, when you said she planned this out, I don't think she's a great planner. I think she's got a like an inch deep plan and maybe a mile wide. And she's it's literally something that it just befuddles the mind. If she watched even one true crime show, she wouldn't have done half the things she's done. And so thankfully she hasn't because I really don't think she's a high IQ person. Greg, do you agree with that, that she is low IQ? She's not high IQ and didn't really think out the repercussions of all that she's gotten herself into? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and that even bears out in the way that she tried to conduct her business, uh, trying to be a realtor. She got upside down in virtually everything she did. Uh, the investments that she was involved in were, were poorly managed. Um, just the, the planning of this. I, I think, Joel, that, in, in, that she just thought that this would look to law enforcement to be a simple opioid overdose, like we see every day, unfortunately, in this country. And she didn't think that anyone was going to take a second look at it. I, I think she just assumed uh, law enforcement would come in, pick up the body, another another uh, opioid overdose, this is really tragic, see you later, goodbye, and we wouldn't have or hear anything more about it. But she underestimated the, the, 
the really the will of the Richens family to keep pushing this, uh, the strength of the law enforcement community up there where this occurred, and her own um, you know ability to pull this off. I mean, I, I think she just thought this was a real easy, simple thing, and no one would think the no one would think anything of it. Uh, Tolly's asking. Uh, so my nephew's unit, uh, they were trying to fundraise because they little, like I said, they they left without flak jackets and helmets. Um, they've they're starting to get equipment, and believe it or not, in a matter of two days or three days, just among friends uh, and family, they raised like two hundred and seventy thousand dollars. So they're going to get uh, some of the things that uh, they need. Here's KCL, who's been all over Corey Richens. So glad you're discussing this Corey Richens case again. Next hearing is November 3rd. I hope the prosecution is successful at getting a no contact order between Corey and her mom, given, uh, I don't know what that, I'm bad at initials, but whatever, but we get the idea. But Greg, um, KCL is bringing this up. Um, I couldn't even get McSpunky's name right, and I barely know what FOMO is, so don't take it personally, KCL. But um, last we left, uh, Greg, we hadn't discussed this whole issue of potential witness tampering, and it revolves around this letter that uh, jail officials found in her cell, and that came after um, a seizure. We'll get to that in a moment. But this letter basically relays instructions about where her family should say that her husband, Eric, got the drugs that killed him. Again, sort of pointing to her intelligence or lack thereof. But um, what else do we know about this letter? I believe it was six pages handwritten. And uh, I've got some more details that will continue to break down. Yeah, so Joel, it was found during a re routine search of her cell. And of course, uh, we know that people who are incarcerated have a very limited uh, right to privacy to documents and things that they have in their cell. Or certainly there are security uh, concerns why you would not have an expectation of privacy. So they did search her cell. They found the letter. I think it's called the take the dogs out letter or something like that or walk the dogs or whatever because there's some notation on it. But it goes through, uh, Joel, pretty clearly what looks to be an attempt to have uh, her family tell her brother uh, what to say at court and to line out a defense that would make it seem as though Eric had a drug problem, that he specifically had a fentanyl problem, that he was traveling around uh, into different countries to purchase that, and that this was not something that was just out of the blue. Of course, we, we know that that's not true, that he didn't have a substance abuse problem, that he wasn't addicted to opioids, but it's it's a way for her to create a defense, uh, to create a, something that, that didn't exist, uh, to maybe persuade the jury that maybe this was an accidental overdose and that it wasn't a homicide. Uh, Michelle Pretorius, one of the reasons we started earlier, thank you for the earlier shows. It's nice to be able to catch a live. She is coming to us. Uh, another STS member who is in South Africa, um, Susan Constantine. So uh, kind of expanding on what Greg was just saying, this letter that they found in her cell was to her mom. The mom's name is Lisa Darden, and it was to have her brother, Ronnie Darden, falsely testify that Eric received drugs and pills from Mexico. It was a six-page handwritten uh, note. Um and in it, there's a quote that Eric told such and such redacted. They redacted the name from the court documents or the, the, for the letter that they, uh, I guess, brought into evidence that he got pain pills and fentanyl from Mexico from workers on the ranch. So 
again, this seems like a small mind at play. She's she's fabricating this story, and it sounds weak, and it is weak, and uh, you know, trying to go between her ears. What do you think she's thinking here? Obviously, trying to deflect the blame from herself. Sure, I think she's got a lot of time in jail to think this out. <laughs> you know, she's kind of reminds me of Casey Anthony, and and just the stories that they try to dream up because they have no other time. Right. This, they're in that cell 24-7 for the most part. So they're thinking and they're plotting and trying to figure things out and trying to come up with it, other you know, ways to try to divert the attention away from themselves. And ultimately, you know, the evidence is there. Right. You've got those letters. And I think Greg will attest to this because I'm sure he's he's uh, also analyzed a lot of statements. Man, we could probably rip this thing apart pretty well, you know, just taking the language and 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 trying to figure out what her what her thinking pattern is but overall she's looking for somebody that's going to be her catcher right someone that's going to stand up that's going to lie for her and i think that she's sadly mistaken because i saw her brother i and he says there's nothing about this that is true i have nothing to do with it and i believed him i mean there was nothing in his demeanor that told me that he was lying about it or that he was trying to cover it up so I think she's got a lot of time on her hands trying to figure out some way to get herself out of that, out of the mess that she created. And I don't think it's going to be successful. Um, to you, Robin, from L. Anderson, a name I've not seen before on Corey, the transparency is outrageous. She's got to be a pretty deep seated narcissist. I know you're not a psychologist, but you recruited spies and know uh, human nature. You know, how would you define her or describe her in terms of, you know, like uh, the psychological aspect of her personality? Yeah. Yeah. So without, you know, doing the clinician uh, definition of it, she is so extremely self-centered that to what Suzanne was saying, she, she doesn't have the relationships that she thinks she has to pull off what she's trying to pull off, you know, because she doesn't have the, the loyalty of anyone you know, just go to back to Lori Daybell, that case. Yeah. You know, she she got convicted also because she had no one stand by her side saying she's a good person. You know why? Because when you're that self-centered, that narcissistic or whatever we want to call it, there's no one that's going to stand with you. And so when she keeps reaching out, and again, her level of intelligence is beautiful, thankfully for us in the prosecution, is that when you write a letter telling people how to lie for you in jail and it falls on deaf ears, that's saying a lot. And so I don't think there's going to be anyone that stands with her because she's got a lifetime pattern of not forming deep enough relationships to really lean on them. Hmm. Um, back to you, Susan, from I Am Not T-Pain, one of our moderators. Now, Corey is very calculated, but it is not very smart calculations. Can you be calculated and not be smart simultaneously? Oh, yeah. I mean, she has all <laughs> emotional intelligence, right? So she's detached. Her her whole mind. There's so much depravity in her thinking, right? She's when she and what you're both talking about is that how selfish she is. All of this is self motivated. So yes, I mean, she can. She. I think that her thing is that she's self deceptive. She mm -hmm. really believes that she can pull it off. That falls in line with that narcissistic personality disorder. So without her being uh, diagnosed, in which I am not a clinician as well. But in my training, we've been taught how to identify dangerous behaviors, dangerous demeanors, da dangerous psychological uh, um, or, or 
people that have different psychological issues. But she falls in that line. I mean, there's no one that can pull that off. The thing is she can pull it off unless there is some narcissism. I don't, it's interesting. When I look at her, I don't, I don't see that the, the hatred in her eyes. I don't see it in her facial expressions. I don't see that at all. I think this is all about her, her greed and thinking that she deserved it. And somehow or another, she feels that she can get away with it. And she can also, um, she can actually feel not guilty for what she did. She doesn't have that emotional intelligence that normal people have. Uh, by the way, there's a super sticker for you, uh, Susan. Does Susan, she says kibitz, but then here says ibits. Does Susan ibits work for you or with you? Do you know that name? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take that as a no. I'll take that as a no, Sarah Adams. Um, Robin here. I think her narcissism narcissism got in her way besides the lack of intelligence that contributed to Corey's being arrested. I, I guess same sort of question. Uh, you don't know, you can be calculated, but don't necessarily have to be smart to be calculated. Correct. That's yeah, correct. De- de- definitely. And I think the thing that really came in here too is when you're that self-centered in all that you do, your curiosity is extremely low and, and because you can see the actions that she's taken, I mean, everyone on, on the amazing STS Nation, we're all very curious people. That's why you have all these great viewers tuning in all the time to continually learn, to continually experience, to help understand the craziness of the world around us so we can interact with it more effectively and better. She doesn't have that. She has no curiosity. She's got one mouth in two years, and yet she's not using anything but her mouth. And it's not serving her at all because she's not taking any information in except what it looks like she saw in Bugs Bunny when she was growing up. I mean, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, KCL letting us know she's all over uh, the facts of all these cases. Walk the dog letter is what it's called. And this interesting comment, and I promise we're getting back to Greg Scordis, who's the man who knows much about the intricacies of the detail. Uh, Gen X Granny, who's one of her mods, says, Corey is selfish and thought nothing of her kids. She only cares about money. Susan, why do you see these, uh, you know, in particular female killers um, seemingly not thinking twice about their own children. They take it to the next step with Lori Vallow Daybell, who murdered her own kids. But why do they seem to just not care about the, you know, their own progeny? That seems pretty twisted. Well, I'm going to tell you, I think they think it's the opposite. I think they think that they're doing what's best on behalf of the children. When you talk about Lori Daybell, I think that she was so indoctrinated into that whole cult belief system that she truly believes she's convinced herself that they were better off. And I think also in this care, in this situation with Corey, I think that she felt that the children were better off with her than rather with him. That's how she was able to justify it. So it's not a question that I don't think that she cares about her children. I think that she has her, her thinking about uh, what is right is dis- really distorted. And so she's thinking that by removing her, her, the dad, that somehow she'll be okay because dad is going to be in the heaven looking down. He's just in a different form. So that's how she's able to justify it. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that she, that's going on in through her brain. But, um, I mean, it truly is selfish, not truly 
feeling the the type of uh, mother motherly love that real moms like myself feel about our daughters and my children and also too and I've seen you Joel with your kids right and your in your wife and darling by the way she's darling and, and and when you see that kind of family unit come together you wouldn't want to do anything to cause pain uh, for your children and especially when their father is not there because as as somebody's going through a a divorce or a bad relationship, they, you know, what's proper is that the children thrive best with both parents, right? Especially when they're healthy, but they don't see that. So they've convinced themselves, they become very callous and cold and um, they're, you know, they don't have the natural emotion that other humans do. They just don't. It's just not there. And that's why I do believe that they are so detached that I think that they're just, um, you know, just inhibited with evil. I just think that that's what's in them. Mm. Uh, McSpunky says, uh, Robin, to you, and then I promise we're getting back to Greg. I need to go visit Corey. She's two hours away from me. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Obviously joking, but brought out a point uh, also between some of the things that you and Susan were saying. I mean, when you look at Corey Richens, and I've said this to Greg before, she literally looks like the girl next door, you know, just very benign looking. What does that tell us about all the people we see every day who just look like normal average people, but might not be uh, that way on the inside? You never know what's going on beneath the surface. (laughs) You know, human beings are these beautiful, curious creatures. We all are even the greatest in the world that have, I mean, you look at Einstein, you look at Leonardo da Vinci, you look at the Martin Luther King, you look at Mahatma Gandhi, you look at all these great people that have ever lived. All of them had had greatness through the path of great failure, great things that are going sideways in their lives. It's just how do they face those things? Do they see themselves as wound collectors and victims or do they or are they problem solvers and curious? And so you never know what's going on beneath that surface. And in, in this case, yeah, there's a there's a wound collector here that has a lifetime of reps of being so self-centered that she made all the choices in her life surrounding herself. But and to Susan's point, she doesn't see it that way. There's, there, you know, you could confront her with all the evidence in the world and she's going to think she took the best actions possible for the entire world around her. Uh, Jay just wrote a well-deserved five-star review for STS on Apple Podcasts. Uh, please continue to do that. It gets our rankings up. It helps us a lot. So appreciate that. Uh, back to uh, KCL for Greg Scordis. Uh, Corey tried to claim that uh, walk the dog letter was attorney-client privilege. Then she claimed it was a fictional story she was writing. No one's going to believe that. Um, Greg, what about that? I mean, what if she's writing um, for a moment, um, you know, this handwritten letter in her jail cell? And by the way, we've had Sky Lazaro on our show. She is the criminal defense attorney for Corey and know doing what she needs to do but what about this notion is anything in that jail cell uh, attorney client privilege or is that public record once the uh, jail officials find it yeah so the the jails typically say joel that uh, what you have in your cell you don't have a, a reasonable expectation of privacy for now certainly if you're writing a letter to your attorney and you mark attorney client privilege the jailers will almost always honor that and send it out but this letter wasn't addressed to her attorney. It was addressed to her mother. I mean, and there's no mommy-daughter privilege under the, the Utah rules of evidence that would exclude the admissibility of that. It does reference, however, 
uh, some conversations that she had, and she says, well, my attorney thinks that uh, a defense could go this way. You know, the, the what you've talked about earlier, Joel, which is that he was getting the, the drugs in Mexico, and my attorney thinks that maybe we should look into that. So it references, in that respect, some attorney-client communications. Certainly those wouldn't be admissible. They couldn't be used in court. But the letter itself is an attempt, at least from my perspective, to either coach or, or, or worse, uh, you know, suborn perjury to coach a witness or, or witness tamper, really, and get someone to testify to something that we believe on behalf of the Richens family is absolutely untrue. Uh, by the way, catch up, friend of the show, uh, I believe now in North Carolina, uh, she says Corey has a major case of liabilities, uh, no doubt about that. And Jay Stuckey just became a member yesterday. So thanks to uh, Jay for becoming a member. Um, Greg, back to you. So Corey in this walk the dog letter warns her mother to only speak to her brother, Ronnie, about the matter in person because she believes uh, that her mother's home and phone were bugged. And then she goes on and instructs her mom to get someone named quote unquote Lotto to contact her. Do we know who this Lotto person is? Um, we figured that out. We got to the bottom of it. I don't know that, Joel. I think that's a good question. You know, she, she does instruct her mother to, to talk to her brother in person. If you read the sort of between the lines of the letter, she even says, you know, and spoon feed him this this story and make sure you don't complicate it too much. Keep keep it on the dumb because uh, apparently the brother is not uh, as sophisticated as we might want it. And if he's going to come up with a story, she, she almost spells it out for him. She actually drafts the same story if you read that letter two or three times in the letter. But no, I don't know some of the some of the nuances and some of the sort of the hinting, the background uh, names and, and references that they use in the letter. It's clear that the letter is to, to mom. It involves her brother, and it involves an attempt to get the brother to say something that there is really no foundation for, no proof that is true in any respect. And Greg, what's the legal burden for witness tampering? Because that's you know basically what the state is alleging. Uh, does this you know does this um, fall into those parameters as being witness tampering? You know, I, you know, I think it could. I don't know that the state's going to pursue that. In all honesty, I mean, the big ticket item here is obviously the homicide, and the witness tampering could be serious. Uh, it could be consequential, uh, but I don't know that the state's going to spend a lot of resources pursuing that. What happened, though, early on was that there was a protective order in place. And really, the judge is saying, look, we've we, we got to keep the, the lid on this case and make sure that we, when we get to a jury, that there's not a lot of information that's coming out. So don't be uh, telling people to do things, telling people to say things. Um, and, and so the state's really more concerned, uh, whether it was witness tampering or not, about just putting the lid on this and saying, look, you can't be communicating, you can't be uh, you can't be telling people what to say. You can't be coaching witnesses. We need to just make sure that whatever people say when they go to court is the truth and not what somebody told them the truth might potentially be. Uh, and one more question from KCL for Greg. Does Greg think the judge is going to grant the prosecution's request to make it so Corey has no contact with her mom, Lisa Darden, given the potential witness tampering? Will there be a no contact order? I doubt it, Joel. I mean, I, I understand why the state's trying to do this, but I mean, you can't prevent a, a, a defendant from talking to their parent. I mean, it would certainly make sense because they're not privileged conversations and they're often recorded. 
uh, that the state, uh, that the law, the jailers there could listen to the conversations and they could certainly review letters as they did in this case. Uh, they're going in and out, but I don't know if you could prevent somebody from contacting their parent. I, I understand what the state's doing. They're, they're really feeling like she's gone way over the top here to try to get her mom to talk to her brother, to get him to say something that fits in with her version of how best to get out of this problem that she's created for herself. Uh, but I don't know that the state can can regulate a, an inmate's ability to communicate with their family. Uh, McSpunky, you better uh, be careful here. He says, Corey's kind of cute, but a psycho and not so smart. I would not. I, my recommendation is do not go visit her uh, in prison. It could end poorly for you, McSpunky. Don't want to see you drinking a Moscow mule in, in that jail. Um, Susan, to you. So, you know, I just said to Greg that Corey, she warns her mother uh, to only speak to her brother, Ron, in person because she now believes that her mom's home is being bugged, which is not really typical of, you know, the the way the judicial system and the law enforcement, you know, plays their hand. You know, in some cases it does happen, like we were doing the Dan Markell story and, uh, you know, and trying to get information. They were wiretapping the family. But in this case, it's almost certain that they were not. Um, do you think she's got an element of paranoia to her as well? Yeah. And, you know, this is also a part of that narcissistic personality disorder. Those type of people tend to be very suspicious of other people. They have um, an element of paranoia, thinking that other people are out to get them. There's other people watching them. And so they're really super cautious about everything around them. They're thinking that there's a boogeyman right behind every corner. But I think that she she's really just, she's like the puppet master, right? <laughs> and uh, she's just trying to control everything from right there from her jail cell. And uh, But anyway, I want to speak to you about, you know, they were talking about that there she was a good-looking girl, but she's a psycho. And we see so much of this, too, right? I mean, I mean, you know, cycles don't always come in unattractiveness. They can come in very attractive packages. We've seen that with Jody Arias. Remember her? Um, of course, Casey Anthony. We can just name them. Even uh, Lori Daybell. And they were all very attractive women. And I think that they also think that that attractiveness is somehow going to appeal to that jury. And I think we've kind of moved away from that. I think that when we've these, we've had so many of these cases of of, of mother uh, women you know, poisoning their husbands, now is, is kind of opening up to, hey, we can't, you know, we have to look inside these women to thinking, you know, what is it that's motivating them, them to do it? Because they kill differently than men do. Uh, interesting point. Jenny Raphael, hello from Sweden. Lest you think we are not a global show. Um, these two comments, Robin, stand out to me, and I'll tell you why. Um, from... Ginger snaps in the letter. She even ends with saying she was going after Eric's sisters when she gets out. Wow. Read the room. Um, and to her mom, she writes, and I quote here, we're so close to the end. Let's push through, have the conversation with Ronnie, her brother, before he meets with sky, the defense attorney. Um, so she's sort of narcissistic, self-centered, psychopathic, but, can we also add delusional because uh, she's probably never getting out. Uh, she's likely to be convicted on this. And now she's telling her mom, you know, we're, we're quote unquote close to the end here. Again, I'm trying to get inside her mind. 
she just doesn't live in reality or she's just not that bright or both, right? Yeah, everything you just said. That there's, I mean, every it's one of these things too when when we were speaking and about letting her speak to her mother or not, and and whether that's a good idea or not. I say keep letting her speak. Every time she opens up her mouth or does something, she just sinks her boat even more because she's really operating at a very low. I won't say low intelligence. It's kind of she just has doesn't have any data. She has no data points on what she's actually trying to execute. She's got no experience. She hasn't watched anything, but it looks like one really bad TV show when she came up with what she wanted to do. And to your point also, Suzanne was saying, we got a, she's fitting an arc of all these people of why they kill or attempt to kill their spouses. And she's fitting right into that behavior arc. And the fact that she doesn't even recognize it shows that lack of curiosity, the lack of intelligence, the lack of everything. I mean, she's literally falling right in the mean of all these different data points of individuals. Mm. Uh, Meg P says, Susan, back to you on this, because we're kind of circling the uh, wagons on this, but just Meg, you know, kind of comes straight out. I don't get where people think they can get away with murder or even have the thoughts to commit murder. Why do people think you almost always get caught? So what's going on in their head? Is it just in the moment? You know, they're obviously crimes of passion, but this seems very premeditated. But why is it that people think they're going to get away with these crimes? They're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. They're just stupid. I mean, I think that she thought she could get away with it. And I don't think that she ever thought that she would get caught. But you you guys all know we're all kind of in the same line of business. They always get caught. So, I mean, at some point in time, I don't know what show she's watching, but at every show I've watched at the end, after I don't care how many, 20 years, 30 years, I, at some point in time, something comes up and we find out and there's more DNA evidence or something's going to link it to them, some sort of forensic evidence that's going to link them to them. And at some point in time, every, mostly, not every, Mostly every criminal and murderer gets caught. Yeah, uh, a true fact there. A lot of people, you know, there are murderers that get away, but these types of crimes, they're almost, you know, always uh, little trails that that get them caught. But Greg, um, the state here says, and I quote, it is imperative that Corey Richens has no contact with her mother or brother because of the newfound letter, which was found about a month ago now which constitutes witness tampering. That's what prosecutors laid out. But the defense says um, they filed a motion accusing the state, believe it or not, of violating its gag order by filing the letter. That's insane to me. Um, Is that just a defense attorney being a defense attorney? I mean, they're getting this thing from the jail. They're bringing it to the judge's attention. And now the defense is turning around and saying you're violating the gag order. Isn't that just a legal process that has to be played out. Yeah, and I guess sometimes the best defense is a good offense. So you you attack the state in in the defense of the defense. And, and I just to play devil's advocate, I think the state could have filed the same motion and prepared the letter and included it in the motion, but had the letter sealed. That happens all the time in legal proceedings where you say, hey, we found this letter. It's problematic. Here it is, judge. You can look at it, but we don't want the world at large to get it. But the state filed it as an exhibit to their motion, which means it's part of the public record. So um, could they have done it differently? I mean, 
absolutely. Should they? I don't know. Right. No, not <laughs> a dog barking at least. I don't have that call or ringtone. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I I was a little concerned when the state disclosed the letter. I understand why they did it, and I can understand the defense claiming what they have as well, Joel. And and someone mentioned this next. Uh, what are we expecting? Do you know at the next court hearing? So we haven't even had a preliminary hearing yet, and they're apparently just. Uh, a huge amount of documents that the state has prepared here in terms of police reports. They had the bail hearing, the detention hearing uh, back in the summer, which was, it looked and sort of felt like a preliminary hearing because the state put on witnesses, they put on what they called a substantial evidence case to show that she had committed the crime and that she may flee the jurisdiction so that the judge could hold her without bail. But a preliminary hearing, Joel, will be, mo will be more than that. There'll be more, more evidence the state will produce. The defense, even though their client's in custody and you would expect them to want to move it along quickly because of speedy trial considerations, has asked for more time. The November hearing, I think it's November 3rd, is just to schedule another hearing. It seems to me, given that, that we're probably unlikely to have a preliminary hearing this calendar year, which would mean a trial would be probably five or six months after that. Um, Susan, to you, Sarah Adams says it's going to be a while for the trial, uh, a little on the antisocial side. I mean, is that part of the issue with her as well? Almost, uh, you know, on the spectrum, maybe here, as they say, you know, I don't see that part of it. Maybe Robin, you know, you could speak to that too, because I don't see the antisocial personality disorder there. Those are types of people that are more recluse. They're, they're, no, they're antisocial. They don't really, uh, get a, it's not that they don't get along well with people they just don't go out into the community they're not types of people that go outside of their safe zone they tend to be very recluse i don't see that at all i think that she's very manipulative i think that she thinks that she can um coerce people um and that takes some manipulation skills that's really some of that's thinking very um fast and quick about how she's able to convince people and it, she can't be antisocial if she's able to go out into the community and be able to network and and talk with other people and she thinks she has influence um and she has people that are um that will stand behind her stand beside her but i don't see her as an antisocial personality disorder uh and then uh robin to you because this has always been kind of the crux of this entire story is that she wrote a story she wrote this kids book um and this was when she went on a local show in salt lake city to promote it and her husband is portrayed as a, an angel in there uh, over the moon says it was disturbing to watch her interview about her book written for grieving children uh who are grieving their own parents loss knowing that she poisoned them and then t-pain uh writes what is the psychology and again i know uh neither susan nor robin are professional therapists or psychologists, but they study human behavior. But what is the psychology behind someone who knew that they are the reason their husband is now an angel and drew them into a book as an angel for her children so they knew he was always with them? I mean, it seems super demented and twisted uh -huh. to kill your husband and then portray him this way in a kid's book, right? So because she's so self-centered, 
I mean, overly so more than anyone can really truly understand. She saw this as one big business opportunity. That's all it is to her. Again, she objectified her husband as an ends, a means to her ends of what she's looking for. And the book was just something that came along that did it. And from what I saw on, on, online as well, it looks like she had a ghostwriter for it because she couldn't really, she couldn't really write and identify with a grieving wife because she isn't one. She literally did this as a business opportunity that kind of popped into her head is what my conjecture is. And so that's how you can do it is again, just like these animals over in, in Israel right now, how can you kill children? Same way. They objectify the individual and you just move forward like it's a business. I'd like to comment a little bit on that one. I think, too, just to both your, your points here, I think she's staging. I mean, all of this is about setting the stage. So in her mind, she's thinking, now, if he's going to pass away, how can I stage this? How can I create this story to where it, I look like I'm the caring mother, I'm the caring yeah. parent, and, you know, with the angels, you know, the angelic, and dad's looking down. So this is a part that's very calculated. That's why I say that she's, you know, she may not be the, the sharpest tack, but she is very calculated in her thinking. Like she has to be thinking about what would that look like? How would that appear? The thing that threw me off from all that is the timing of when that book came out. And I know, I mean, I don't know um, if both of you have written books, but I know that um, there's been some great books, Robin, that you've written too, right? So, um when, that takes time. You had to been thinking about the photographs, how you want that front cover to look like, what the storyline is going to be, how long the book is going to be, who you're going to be, who you're going to be um, promoting the book to, what publishers, etc. That takes a lot of thinking and planning. So that's the planning, the calculated person that she is, staging what it should look like. And I think that we see this on a lot of cases, even in the Murdoch case, staging these scenes that appear to be caring and loving and concerned. And they're just completely the opposite. And that's what I find really frightening um, and it's something that I'm really curious to find out and, and, and understand because we're seeing so much more of the psychopathy with the self-deception and lying and doing it so so um, eloquently, you know, like they literally can be one person and be completely opposite and going out and killing people late at night. Uh, to me, it's mind blowing of what's happening out there. There's gotta be an explanation for it. And it's something that I'm very curious to understand. And uh, because I'm writing a new book myself and I think this is a part that I wanna talk about. And those you know, are great and, and, can I jump in real quick on that one? Because you really brought up a, a great point there. Because again, I, I'm in the middle of uh, my fourth book. It, it's written. I'm I'm working with different publishers. You know, I, I was done with the draft like four or five months ago. And this might be something that Greg knows. When did she sign the deal? Because the book came out a year after her husband died. When did she sign that deal? And was the manuscript done before she signed that deal? Because that's actually a really interesting timeline to, to think about because I didn't I mean I, I thought about the book as a, as a target of opportunity for her to deflect but not in the pre-calculation that Susan just brought up because that is really interesting on that timeline uh -huh. that's a really good question Robin I don't know the answer to that it would be interesting and I'm sure that the states delved into that they've got a lot yeah. of evidence in this case that they haven't disclosed yet that may very well be part of, part of their arsenal 
Yeah, Susan raises uh, great points. I had not thought of that. Uh, as a person who is now going through the edits uh, that were handed back to me, I can tell you, it takes a lot of work to write a book. Um, oh, years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes. You just don't throw a book together. You know? And especially children's books, because, you know, when you know the market, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people trying to put out children mm-hmm. books. Yeah. And to have that go fast track, that's it's pretty, pretty remarkable. She either knew someone, she manipulated someone, or she had already had it done. I mean, she's really close to what she was doing. That's, again, it's an interesting timeline to explore. Like, like Greg said, I'm sure the prosecution has. Yeah. Uh, KCL, back to the uh, self-centeredness here. In that letter, Corey was also asking her mom to buy her teeth whitening strips and to take them out of the box and put them in an envelope for Sky Lazaro, the defense attorney, to sneak into her. Um, Last thing I'd be worrying about is teeth whitening, but that's me, not her. Um, Greg Scordis, to you, um, this was interesting. Uh, The search was conducted after Corey suffered a seizure when she was given the wrong medication at the Summit County Jail, which is all fine and well. But then I continued and I found out in my research, she was given the wrong medicine six times, six different times. What do we know about that? Um, It almost seems like karma for someone who's poisoned, accused of poisoning someone. But what do we know about this medication issue and and these seizures? Boy, I'll tell you, the... the the Summit County law enforcement community has been very uh, circumspect about that, Joel. They're not disclosing that. Uh, there may be a HIPAA or other concerns, but we're not getting information about that. Even enough information to confirm that it's absolutely true. I mean, I'm not doubting it, and I'm not saying that it didn't occur, but they're they're very tight-lipped about that information right now, Joel. Mm. Um Simply Lore says, Robin, very disturbed by this case and the fact that these kids have had to keep living with her for months before she was arrested. What do you think, you know, obviously this is projection, um, but what do you think the relationship is like between her and her children? And do you think she was trying to manipulate in the time that she was not arrested? It was almost a year, if not more. um, Do you think she was trying to manipulate the children into maybe thinking their father was not a great person. What, what do you think was going on there? There's multiple angles when you when you deal with people that are in close proximity all the time. And let's let's look at the angle of the children first, because they're the victims in this. And they at this at their age, they probably don't see it that way. They probably care very deeply about their, their mother. Again, pure projection. In uh, a lot of pain, maybe co- definitely confusion right now. You know, you look at the Murdoch trial and you look at the surviving son and how he regards his father, um, even after he's been convicted of murder. So when you are living with someone and they're your provider, she's probably mis- misrepresenting truth to them, no, most definitely, obviously. But how that looks to them is just truth to them, most likely. Um, now, from the reverse angle, from what other people are seeing and how she's treating the children... Um, just differently because context is everything in these things. And so it's what it's the important thing at this point is what kind of counseling and what kind of things are you going to do to rehabilitate the children to some healthier thinking, some healthy interactions, a healthy relationship so they can move on in life and have, even if she's acquitted for some reason, or she gets off in any way. I mean, that's the most important thing is how do you readjust someone that has been unwittingly to them 
really immerse in a culture of manipulation and subterfuge. And um, Susan, on that same point, uh, in the same vein, we've been covering, as I said earlier, the Dan Markell case. Um, for those who don't know, the three-second version is uh, Dan Markell was Harvard-educated, was an FSU legal scholar, a professor. Uh, his marriage went south. Uh, his wife, uh, you know, and him were not getting along. Then he ends up dead, and three different two hitmen and a uh, go-between were arrested. And now the ex-brother-in-law. Um, who's believed responsible is going on trial for murder in Tallahassee uh, at the end of this month. We're going to be there, by the way. But um, the ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, who lives not far from me in Miami, you know, not only did she get the children and it was a custody issue uh, and won in the end. Uh, and, you know, the murder in a crazy way has helped her in that regard. She also changed the children's names. She got rid of the Markell name took on her maiden name of Adelson, uh, is not allowing Ruth Markell to visit these kids. Uh, they're at the age now where they're starting to be able to read about it or Google about it. But what is the collateral damage to these children from these crazy parents, you know, not just as children, but as they grow older, I assume that they will always be scarred by this, right? Yeah, you would imagine that would be because what she's doing is she's changing those children's identity, right? It's, you know, changing identity of who they are, what their last name is. On the other hand, I think she's probably changed the name because she doesn't know that anybody could Google her name would be able to find out information about what had occurred. There's also one kind of speaking to, you know, what these about um, Corin is that when you think about her, she's probably there's something in it for her. Like, in other words, when it comes to her children, there's some sort of unresolved need or desperate need to be wanted, to be significant with those children, to be savior-like with those children. So, there, you know, when you start looking at that, you go, God, you know, forget the Maya case, you know, is this a Munchausen's kind of warped kind of thing where they, they feel like they've got to come in and they've got to fix everything. And it's all about me. I'm the savior. I need, and I need, I need to feel validated by these children and loved and to be the superstar. I mean, it's, uh, it's very weird. It's, it's, um, it's hard to put your, your wrap your head around it, but, um, that's what I think too, could be one of the issues with her and with this other case you're talking about. Hmm. Uh, the Angel Rock with Laura Laura Lay. I always screw up her name. Laura Lee, I think it is. Pot fan. Uh, I have a question for Greg Scordis. How does a defense attorney even begin to try to defend someone like Corey? It looks like uh, he doesn't have a lot to work with. It's a woman in this case, and I do realize we don't know all the evidence. But uh, Greg, just a macro uh, picture here. Um, what's it like for you um, or others when they know that their client? you know, is likely guilty and you have to defend them. Um, how do you approach that, Greg? Well, Joel, if you had an hour and a half, I could explain that really well. It's what we do. I mean, in this case, I'm the victim advocate, which is a, the most boring position you could have. If I could prosecute this case, I would be doing cartwheels. If I could be the defense attorney on this case, I would love it. I mean, it's it's an interesting case. It's a fascinating case, and and she's a compelling defendant. I mean, she's somebody you could you could feel comfortable with, and and put the state to its burden. I mean, if you're a defense attorney on this case, say, wait a minute, you know, you, if she's presumed innocent, 
I, I know the evidence is compelling and it's in, in my opinion it's overwhelming but I'm not the most objective person in this case I I, I the spokesperson for the victim's family but she deserves a defense she deserves a good defense she has a great a defense attorney and I'm sure they'll put on a good case and it's what we do I mean it's what the defense attorneys do it's what makes them uh, good at their job is when they when they take a case like this that may look on its face to be uh, to be tough almost impossible to win and and to try it and make sure that the state does their job and that the and that they put on their evidence and that the, the defendant is treated fairly well put uh defense attorneys do have important jobs if you ever found yourself in a position where you needed one you would likely agree a couple more things and then we'll we'll wrap up since it is a lunch live here uh brennan montgomery thank you so much always listening in podcast form uh, first time watching the live show, huge true crime fan. Next time you're uh, listening, please give us those five stars. Like I say, it goes a long way uh, in helping us. Um, one of the other questions that came up, uh, Greg, is that they're not pursuing this as a death penalty case. Are you surprised by that or not at all? Not at all, Joel. I mean, this is a first time offender. Uh, she's like we've been talking about uh, for the last hour, sort of the girl next door, the person next door. I don't see a jury of 12 in Summit County agreeing unanimously and beyond a reasonable doubt that she should be put to death. I mean, whether they agree that she should be convicted of homicide, I think is an easier question for a jury. But in a case like this, I, I, I don't see uh, the state <coughs> dealing with the death penalty. And, I, I, and I'll just say this on behalf of the victim's family, that wasn't something they were pushing either. I mean, if, if Corey is put away for the rest of her life, great. And whatever that life looks like, whether it's 50 years or whatever, I mean, she should never walk the streets again. And and whether it's life in prison or something else, so be it. But but this wasn't going to go to the death penalty. I don't think. I don't. I'm not sure a jury would have would have given her that. Uh, Robin, Liz W. says, can't drive a Lambo in prison. I basically asked Susan this question in a different way, and she gave a short answer, which is uh, she's stupid. Um, what is it about that disconnect? You know, she's hungry for money. She's got these life insurance plans. She's got this grand scheme. She writes this kid's book. You know, she wants to become rich and wealthy and have these this 22,000-square-foot home and have the Lamborghini, but doesn't see that... Uh, it's going to all be taken away from her after she commits a horrific crime. Why don't, why is there that disconnect and why don't they see it? It's, it's part of her sickness and that she, and a lot of people get caught up in what I call the cult of more and the disease of comparison. And they think that happiness is found in, in material gain. And she's, she's chasing something that is unattainable. She's chasing and she thinks it's all about her in order to attain those things because she's, blasting through relationships regardless of consequences because she is that self-centered. It'd be really interesting. I'm sure it'll come out during the trial. Her life arc when she was younger, the things she's experienced, because, yeah, these, these conditions we talk about, there's a lot of biology and chemical imbalances and genetics that play into these things, but also a lot of behaviors that we're exposed to during those formative years of life. And a lot of these behaviors that they're executing now are formed earlier in life through those kind of exposures. And it'll be really interesting to see what those things are. And I'm, I'm, I guarantee you that there's trauma in there. I guarantee you there's a lot of sadness in there that made her into who she is today, but it doesn't ever excuse the behaviors that they're executing. And so she's trying to solve pain points and, and 
gaps in her life by chasing material wealth. Uh, Patricia Burns says, uh, and Susan, I'd love your take on this. Corey, Elizabeth Holmes, Wendy Adelson, they all portray the same symptoms. They look terrifying, cold, and have a callous <laughs> affect. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, yes and no, because it's interesting. You said that I worked on that case, the Kathleen, uh, the Elizabeth Holmes case, and I was hired um, to analyze all those videos back in 2013 to figure out who this girl was and what she was all about when she was talking about her blood testing device that failed. Back then, I said that she didn't believe in her own uh, her own device because she didn't believe in the efficacy of it. So I think that she was, um, Kathleen Holm was an idolizer. She was one that saw her like the, the up and coming Stephen Jobs, the female version of that. So she had this imagery of who she thought she was, highly narcissistic, no doubt. Now, this is someone that could be on the borderline of the antisocial personality disorder because we know that she was highly paranoid, et cetera. Um, Elizabeth Holm was very cold and very calculated too, that very wide-eyed look where she was very, she would stare without even blinking. <laughs> she had the lowest blink rate of anybody I ever met. I don't see her a lot like Corey. I don't know if I would draw that correlation. Um, uh, I just see them totally as different, different types of people, only because I've spent so many hours on that particular case and analyzed so many videos. Susan, now that you brought it up, what is a typical blink rate? How was it measured in, in a minute? Like how many times do people blink in a minute? Do we know? Well, you know, it really is. You have to find out what their norm is, what their normal baseline behavior. So there is no such thing as an average blink rate. Okay. I mm -hmm. mean, as well as 20, uh, 20 blinks per minute or it's multiple times. All we're looking for is changes in their blink rate. Right. And when you look at Elizabeth Holmes, she, she just, I don't know. She just doesn't have a lot of um, mucus in her eyes because she just doesn't blink. You know, she can keep her. And now me, I'm, I'm blinking all the time because I wear contacts. She can go for a long time without blinking. And it's like, it kind of freaks you out, right? When you look at it. Um, <laughs> so what we're just looking for is any sort of changes or shifts from that. When it, she's blinking, she's wide eyed. And then all of a sudden you ask her kind of a probative, probative question. She wanted to deviate from that to say something that's untrue, and then you might see a little change in her, her blink rate, and then it'll happen very rapidly. And why, like, so I, I'm a news junkie, obviously. I've been in the business a, lo a long time, and I always watch guests, and when guests, certain guests get nervous, they blink like crazy. Why? Well, it's anxiety. It's just, all it is is just anxiousness. It doesn't mean it's deceptiveness, you know, and, and I think that you both will agree. There's just nothing in the science that says rapid eye blinking is associated with deception. It's a clue but it doesn't mean that in itself it is a sign of deception. It's really a sign of more anxiousness or, you know, if their mind is moving very quickly, they're very anxious, um, could be with truth tellers as well. Every single person uh, who is watching this or will watch this is now going to look at how the person next to them is blinking. So the things you learn on this show. Right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm keeping my eyes wide open. Uh, last bit of information. Then we'll get final thoughts. Uh, Greg Scordis, no real surprise here. This was a kind of an interesting ancillary story. There's a couple named Alec and Taryn Wright. They bought a home from uh, the Richens a bunch of years ago, and uh, they are now blaming Corey Richens um, because of ma major issues with the home. They've had to evacuate their house. 
because of hazardous levels of mold and an onslaught of mysterious medical problems. Uh, the quote is, there was no trying to right any of the wrongs that she had thrown at us. Uh, she, they, they spoke to Dateline about all this. We're just innocent bystanders in the path of destruction. They're now having to rent a home because they can't live in the home that Corey sold them, and they're filing a civil lawsuit. Uh, what do we know about this? And is this just uh, piling on Corey, or is she really that bad of a uh, uh, you know a landlord slash home seller? Well, I don't know too much about that lawsuit, Joel, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, this is a woman who is completely unable to tell the truth, even when it helps her, even when it could potentially work in her favor. I mean, she she hides things. She uh, conceals. Uh, she doesn't tell the truth. I wouldn't buy a, a used car from her in a million years. I mean, this is the kind of person who is so focused on money, so focused on herself, so focused on trying to get everything she can for herself that she she leaves a trail of, of victims and and we you know we, we can talk about them all day long but that's that's the kind of personality we're dealing with here mm. uh, Marie Pe uh, Marie P says more Munchausen vibes to me and Susan I think mentioned that Tiff Knox says Robin nailing it as usual uh, last thing here um, throughout the September hearing when they, they were discussing uh, other matters um, she apparently had an emotional breakdown uh, where her defense attorney, Sky Lazaro, put her hand on her back, appears to console her. Um, and then Sky says to uh, the local news station, KUTV, and I quote here, this is the defense attorney. This is hard. She's been in custody. She's lost her kids. She's going through a lot. All she wanted from the beginning was to grieve her husband, Susan Constantine. Um, I've talked to your good friend and mine, Phil Waters, about this. He just calls them crocodile tears for affect. Do you, you know, Phil is uh, kind of uh, not the most, uh, he's very empathetic, but not in these situations. But what do you make of that, that she's breaking down in court? Is that more like histrionics and dramatic than it is reality? Well, I'm sure she is feeling overwhelmed because, you know, everything is kind of caving in on, on her. So boo-hoo and Phil is right. You know, those crocodile tears if they're not streaming down her mouth and like you'll say, if he's not, you don't see the snot, then it's not. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's what they said in the Alec Murdoch trial. Uh, people up close, you know, he was, uh, you know, appeared to be crying and everyone who was up close said he was just kind of rubbing his, forgive me, snot all over his face. Uh, Suzanne Holm uh, coming to us from Denmark. Love that. She wanted to be a fly on the wall. Uh, another person I love, Robin Dreek, a best-selling author, professional speaker, trainer. He does it all. I just found out today inadvertently that he's also a pilot. I did not know that, Robin. Uh, you know who would not love that? My mother. She would tell you it's a dangerous thing to stay away from it. She'd be screaming at you. Robin was also uh, chief of the counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. He's got two books so far, three, Code of Trust, and it's not all about me that I know of. What's the fourth book, Robin? So sizing people up is one that's that was my last one, and then the one that I'm that will be coming out sometime when we get the publisher nailed down is uh, it's called Un Un Unstoppable Alliances. It's actually creating the healthy alliances and relationships we need to forge through in life, and so that's what that's why we keep hitting it here that she doesn't have Corey Richens does not have unstoppable alliances. Yeah, um, and you know your final thoughts on her. How do you see this ending? 
kind of like we've been playing out today. If we're seeing a, a pretty easy pattern of behavior, but but as Greg was saying, the, the burden of proof is on the prosecution here on on the state because it's all circumstantial. You know, there's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of you know they're going to be having to put the drug dealer up on stand. You know, and credibility is going to be an issue, but. Luckily, she keeps making a lot of mistakes <laughs> that, that is helping the prosecution with with the hearsay, you know, with, with that arc of behavior. So I, I see it. I see it playing out as we're all predicting. Hopefully, fingers crossed that justice is done. Uh, Susan Constantine, for those who do not know, is one of the nation's leading jury consultants, also a body language and communication expert. I made sure to sit up straight when I was with her at CrimeCon. Uh, she is the owner of the Human Behavior Lab. She's been on all the uh, TV programs like Dateline. You mentioned it. She's been on it. Oh, just lost Robin Dreek there. There he is. He's back. I thought you hate. I thought you were mad, and you just got out of here, Rob. But you bounced right back in. Yeah, um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for the Verizon now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a lot to say about Verizon. Um, Lisa Boris, uh, Corey, uh, Susan, hit the jackpot with Eric. I wonder how long she planned his demise. Uh, that's an interesting final point to kind of go out on. You know, she was working at Home Depot, not to minimize that in any way, but a lower paying job. Eric was very wealthy. Do you think she was sort of hunting for a guy like him uh, in, you know, in a manner of speaking to try to find someone who was wealthy so she could carry out this kind of hideous act? Well, I don't know if she planned that from the very beginning, but she certainly did date her, herself up. That's for sure. I mean, if she met this guy at Home Depot, she did pretty well. I mean, I think there's a lot of girls out there probably want to know her secrets, how she nailed that really rich guy. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that also, too, when it comes to the jury, I think all you need is just one juror just to think a little differently and see uh, that she uh, she's probably not the calculated person as she appears or as she's portrayed. And that's all they needed. So it's never a slam dunk. You never can predict a jury, even though you're a trial consultant. It's just not an exact science. Mm. Yep. Uh neurons on brain not connected right i think the same could probably be said of me but that's an interesting assessment sarah adams i don't know this to be true Ch chat gbt wrote her book who knows maybe <laughs> it's possible and then ned smith i love this comment i'm on my ninth book it's called why do i keep writing books uh i like ned smith's sense of humor he wants to know how the coe and i met i told him he has to buy 10 of my books and then i'll start to talk maybe um last but not least of course we've got uh a true mensch here greg scordis he represents uh deceased husband eric richard's family in uh this twisted case he's practiced law since 82 he began his career as a public defender in salt lake city and now is a fine criminal defense attorney greg what's next for this case and what are you looking for just looking for a trial, Joel. The preliminary hearing will probably be <clears throat> sometime before the end of the year, maybe early next year. Um, <clears throat> the state has put on a good case. They continue to put on a good case, I think. And, and I think the whole community up there, <clears throat> excuse me, is looking forward to a jury trial and hitting, getting the evidence out and having the truth come out, whatever it is. And I hope she gets a fair trial. And I hope that, uh, that the jury uh, sees the case the way I do. I'm pulling up this comment from, for Carm, only for Carm. Hopefully she's listening right now. Joel, the hardest working man in true crime. It's funny because uh, I perpetually beat myself up for not working enough, but everything is relative. I came from broadcast news where I was 
I was worked to the bone. So unless you're working like that, you don't feel like you're working. Uh, but I'm working a lot and I'm working all the time. I did court TV this morning, by the way, at 8 a.m. So I'll be doing that every other Tuesday. And speaking of that, um, just a quick programming note before we say goodbye. Tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time, actually a really amazing show. I hope that you come and support us. We've got, um, I was going to say Corey Richens. We've got Rachel Morin, uh, the mother of five who was murdered on that Maryland hiking trail. Her killer has still not been found. Her brother is coming on as well as the father of her first children. Uh, he is coming on, a guy named Matt McMahon and Nate Morin. They're really amazing people. Uh, they're looking for help from the public. And joining them is a guy named Doug McGregor, who is better known as the Geo Profiler. And he's going to uh, kind of let us into his world of how he tries to track people using what is known as geo profiling. We're doing that at five. And then at seven, we are supposed to uh, be doing the Suzanne Morphew case with Lauren Sharp, who was kind of the lead reporter covering that case locally uh, in the Denver area. She's not feeling great. So I'm going to check in with her. That's supposed to happen. And then Thursday night, 7 p.m., we're back on Brian Koberger. There's kind of a very disturbing story coming out of there, and I'll leave you to Google it, uh, related to Brian Koberger and an author who just wrote an article about one of the victim's families. I'll leave that uh, hanging so you can look into that, but we're going to discuss that on Thursday uh, and what it means for the case and possible uh, grand jury uh Tampering. So we'll see uh, what comes of that. We'll talk about all that Thursday. And then, of course, Friday, Susan's good friend, Phil Waters, is back for Great Scott to True Crime Phil. Until then, love you, America. Give us a five star review. Love you, Orlando, Florida. Love you, Salt Lake City. Love you, Virginia. Right, Robin? You betcha, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Fredericksburg, Virginia. Tasmania, the Republic of Ireland, Israel, and everywhere near and far in between. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.